we here at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed want to share a stress warning with you. Our cases and stories involve mental illness, sexual assault, suicide, gun violence, and emotional trauma. Please listen with care. If you or someone you know is suffering in the U.S., please reach out to 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hey! Hey everyone, Mel and Beck here. We just wanted to drop in and remind you to follow us on our social medias. So our Instagram and our Facebook are Rocky Mountain Red-Handed, and our Twitter is RMRH Podcast. Yeah, so go and check out our social medias. We always post great pics that have to do with our uh, cases, case notes, anything that we find interesting, we share with you guys. Also, Mel, what's that email address? Our email is RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. Yeah, send us in your case recommendations. We want to know about local cases in your community and how they have affected your towns. So hit us up. Let us know of, of the cases you want to hear in the Rocky Mountains. The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Melanie, here with my dear friend, Becky. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. Let's dive in to Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Melanie, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you, Becky? Good, good, good. Just wanted to see if you are an outdoorsy girl. I don't even know. Are you a camper? You know, growing up, I used to camp all the time with my dad. My family are big backpackers and campers. And at the end of the episode, I'm actually going to share a story about a trip, a backpacking trip that we went on. So yes, we are big outdoors people, but it's been a while since I've been camping, actually. What about you? Um, No, not really. Mm -mm, Not at all. I mean, I, we had a cabin when I was growing up. That doesn't count though. That's, that's not outdoorsy because our cabin was not anything rough. So, but I will tell you my sweet husband, he grew up, you know, they have a really big family, his dear mother would wake them up early every Saturday morning. He would wake up and in the kitchen, she would have all of the kids' fanny packs laid out with trail mix and water and everything. And they would go hike every single trail in Zion National Park, all over. My husband hates to camp, hates to hike now because of my wonderful, wonderful mother-in-law. Cheryl, I love you. That is so funny. <laughs> well, so you have to share the story that you read. This is, yes. This, has, this is hilarious. So we were talking about this story before, and it does relate to our case today. But there was a hiker who was hiking in Colorado on Colorado's highest mountain, and he got lost. And as he was lost, I guess he still had cell service. Mm-hmm. And he's and, hiking solo. Yes. Like no one else with him. Yep. All by himself. And he started to get phone calls from a number that he didn't recognize. And decided to not answer those phone calls, which I get. I don't answer numbers that I don't know. But if you're lost (laughs) and the number keeps calling you over and over, I would think you would just at least answer it and see who it is. Even if it's like a sales call, you can still say, hey, I'm lost on Colorado's highest peak. 
send someone for it to help me, please. Anyways, so he just ignored it over and over and was lost for a while. Eventually he was found safe so we can laugh about the story, but I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, the the rescuers are trying to reach out to him and he's, you know, ignoring their phone calls. I love that. I love it. Okay, so going into our story today, we are going to talk about Yellowstone. And it's not just a really popular TV show with some good-looking cowboys, huh, Becky? There's some great-looking cowboys on that show. Yep, Yellowstone National Park was our country's first national park and one of our most popular. It sits on 2.2 million acres and 96% of the park is located in Wyoming. A smaller portion is in Montana, about 3%, and 1% is in Idaho, so it covers a few of our Rocky Mountain states. Yes. Established in 1872, it is one of the country's most loved parks with around 4 million visitors each year, most enjoying the park during the summer months due to its cold climate. Yellowstone preserves more than 10,000 hydrothermal features, a beautiful, unique collection of hot springs, mud pots, and of course, the geysers. Microorganisms called thermophiles, meaning heat-loving, live in these features and give the park its brilliant natural colors. Um, Its most famous attraction, why don't you tell us, Becky? Of course, the geyser, lovingly named Old Faithful. It erupts about 20 times a day and up to 180 feet into the air. This natural attraction is memorable and a highlight for many visitors. Have you been there, Melanie? I have been there. It's amazing. If you haven't gone, you need to go check it out. Very, very cool. With millions of tourists a year, some are bound to become lost or worse in Yellowstone. We have all likely heard of tragedies happening in national parks. A catastrophe can strike almost anyone, even in the most beautiful environments. Todd Farley wrote a great article in the New York Post called Why Most Murders in National Parks Go Unsolved. Yeah, he shared that with 300 million visitors, the average number of deaths is 330 per year in all 423 national parks. More than half are accidents, including drownings, falls, and car accidents. Many of the deaths included in the total 330 are unfortunately suicides. Yet that does leave a few of these deaths to an even darker end. In the article, Mr. Farley covers crimes in various parks and discusses the challenges of these investigations. You know, think of a crime scene in the great outdoors. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of acres of wilderness. Outdoor crime scenes are notoriously difficult to control and preserve. There's lots of things that can get in the way of the evidence, whether Wildlife and accessibility make it close to impossible to safeguard all of the evidence. Yeah, the National Park Service does have some law enforcement rangers, but the jurisdiction is usually shared with local and state authorities. Whether lack of experience or the complications of sharing the jurisdictions or, you know, the impossibly huge crime scenes they're trying to control, these cases just don't get solved sometimes. Today, we are going to talk about the darker side of Yellowstone National Park. Currently, there are three open missing persons cases and eight confirmed murders in the history of the park. We are going to share just a few of the nightmares of Yellowstone National Park. So our first Yellowstone disappearance. Stuart Isaac was just 48 at the time of his disappearance. He was born in the Republic of Palau, but spent the majority of his life in the U.S., He settled in Burtonsville, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. At the time of his disappearance, he was living with his niece and her husband. 
On September 6, 2010, Stewart packed a bag and left a handwritten note to his family stating he was taking a solo road trip to Yellowstone National Park. The police just said family, so no other details. Um, we don't know exactly who the note was left for, if it was the niece he was living with or his uh, spouse. Yeah, right. We do know he was married in 1997, but there are reports he was divorced at the time of his road trip. So, you know, just the generality of the family. This must have been a surprise to his family because he had not made any plans in advance. Um, Stuart was not really an outdoor enthusiast either. He had no experience in hiking or backpacking. He loaded up his 2009 black Lexus IS250 sedan with a personalized license plate saying Bellic, B-E-L-L-E-K, and he hit the road. It is over a 2,000-mile drive across many states, and it reportedly takes about 34 hours, if you're driving the speed limit, to make that drive. It's a long drive. On September 7th, 2010, 32 hours later, Stewart arrived at Yellowstone National Park. So it sounds like he just drove straight through and didn't take any breaks. That sounds exhausting. Yeah, well, and it sounds like he was speeding you know, it's supposed to take 34 hours. It took him 32. So he was, he was, sounds like he's in a hurry. Yes. There are many possible routes he could have taken, but he most likely, he probably took I-94 through Chicago and across North Dakota, or he could have used I-90 and I-80, which would take you across South Dakota. And any of those routes is going to take you a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. You know, it is possible he had a passenger in the car, but nothing has been shared by the police or family or friends mentioning a road companion. So we don't know if he was driving solo or if he had a helper. It would make more sense if he had a helper to kind of take turns to sleep. But again, we don't know that. I mean, he could have even just picked up a hitchhiker. We don't know. It's true. So we know Stuart arrived on September 7th, but we don't have any further information about how he spent his time. Yeah, the national parks in the U.S. have ranger booths when you enter the and exit the park. Mel, do you guys go to national parks very often? Not super often. That will disappoint my dad, but uh, he goes a lot. And I do know about the ranger booths at the front. We have an annual pass that we've used like once because I have a son that's autistic and he hates the outdoors. He kicks trees. So we need to get out there more often. But yeah, when you go to a national park, you have those little ranger booths that your car goes through and they, you know, you can purchase a, a day pass, a three day pass or an annual pass. And each car that comes through receives a timestamp ticket, um, which they ask you to hang in your car window. We're assuming here, but I think this ticket was probably a good indicator to the officials of his arrival time and date. That kind of gives you a good stamp. Yeah. At this time, I was unable to find if Yellowstone had cameras when Stuart was there. Um, I'm sure they do currently. Our parks in Utah do. Yeah, but we don't know about it at the time that mm-hmm. this happened. Stuart disappeared 12 years ago, so cameras were not really as common as they are nowadays. Um, pretty much now you can't go anywhere without some camera capturing you. That's true. We don't know if there is footage of Stuart's movements in the parks. The police have not released any if that is available. Mm-hmm. The next info we have is two weeks later on September 24th, Stuart called a good friend from high school. Yeah, you heard that right. It was two weeks later. I mean, that is a huge gap in our timeline. The 7th to the 24th, 17 days. We don't know of any of the movements or activity for Stuart in that time. And again, the police are not releasing anything, so we're not sure if they know more. Yeah, they're saying very tight-lipped. Okay, so Stuart called a friend, Matsu Evans, living all the way in Guam. 
They usually only communicated over email or text, and they rarely spoke on the phone. But on this day, Stuart did call Matsu. The call was made at 1.30 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, which is 6.30 p.m. in Guam. So the two friends talked for a full two hours. I'm, I mean, I wish we knew what they had said in this conversation. We maybe could answer a bunch of questions if we were able to know what that call was about. Well, even if we just knew his state of mind, was he depressed? Was he upset? Or was he just enjoying the time out at Yellowstone? I mean, it, it, we would know so much more yes. about Stuart's um, frame of mind if and, we knew. And I don't know if you know this about me, Becky, but I actually despise talking on the telephone. So... Talking on the phone for two hours sounds miserable to me. And I'm really surprised we're friends because I would much rather call than text. Like I You're the only one that calls me. I don't know if I've ever <laughs> called you. I text you all the time, but I don't call you. So you do you roll your eyes when I call you? You're like, no. Oh, my gosh. So anyway, two days after the phone call, September 26th, Stuart, or we assume it was Stuart. We're not sure, but we assume um, he parked his Lexus at Craig Pass. It's eight miles east of Yellowstone National Grand Loop Road, linking Old Faithful and West Thumb in Wyoming. Later that night, Stewart's vehicle was located by a routine night patrol by park officials. An officer discovered the car abandoned, unlocked, and keys still inside. There was no other trace of Stewart's scene. Yeah, so Stewart's car was found unlocked. This makes me think that... You know, either he didn't think he would be gone very long, like he could have just pulled over to relieve himself or something, or Stuart may not have planned on returning at all. Yeah, Yellowstone in September can be very, very cold. The average temps are from a high of 61 to lows in the mid-20s. It's not uncommon for Yellowstone to have snow in September. In fact, we read on a local weather source from 2010, and there was, in fact, snow on the ground in late September in Yellowstone. So this is not the time of year for Stuart to be out camping. It would be too cold, I think. Yeah, so Craig Pass, where Stuart's car was abandoned, is at an elevation of 8,200. It's a mountain pass near the Continental Divide, and it's an extremely beautiful drive with lots of twists and turns. It is known as somewhat of a dangerous road. There are no hiking trails or backpack access from Craig Pass. There is a picnic area close to where his car was found, but there's no sign of food or anything else at the site. So with that, we're going to take our first break and we'll be right back. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my balance of nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my balance of nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's balance of nature, promo code REDHANDED. Thank you so much to our sponsors. So let's get back to our story. Stewart's vehicle was just found in Yellowstone on Craig Pass, you know, mysteriously on the side of the road. No signs. Yeah. So after that report came in of Stewart's abandoned car, the officials went right to work. Land and air search began. Sounds like they got really on top of this one quickly. Yeah, it really does. They take lost visitors very seriously in national parks. So it is possible he was attacked by a bear or another wild animal. Um, bears, uh, bear attacks were reported a bit higher than average that year he disappeared. 
yet we don't have any evidence of an attack. I would think that we would definitely have some kind of physical evidence, some blood or something left behind after an animal attack. Again, I'm not an expert though, but that's what I would think. I would think too. Um, well, even with all of the efforts of the National Park Service along with county law enforcement, no results of any evidence or signs of Stuart were found. With nothing found, I think, you know, death by suicide or an animal attack is probably not likely. Yeah, nothing was found. Not a shred of any sign of him outside of the vehicle. It has been 12 years since Stuart's disappearance. We don't have much information, but someone somewhere knows something. Yeah, this was not that long ago. Remember, Craig Pass is known as a, well, a, a remote area. There's much more unvisited and untouched areas without vehicle access, but this is a remote area with vehicle access. This is not a place where you meet up with others or stop for a hike. It's simply a route to get from, you know, one site to another site in Yellowstone. The Old Faithful Inn is just eight miles away. This is where you would probably like meet up with other people or run into them. Craig Pass is just kind of a random place to stop and to disappear. Yeah, Old Faithful is definitely a place to meet up and they've got a restaurant, coffee shop, all that type of thing. I wonder if any unidentified fingerprints were found in the car or other evidence that vehicle must be able to point law enforcement in a direction. Something about the spontaneity of this trip is really what gets to me. Like, I feel like there may be some answers at home. Something must have triggered this cross-country adventure, which ultimately led to his disappearance. So many unanswered questions in this case. Please contact the authorities if you do have any information. Again, Stuart Isaac has been missing since September 24th, 2010 from Yellowstone National Park. Yeah, so many unanswered questions. He's a Pacific Islander, 48 years old at the time of his disappearance, so he would be about 60 today. He is 5'8 to 5'10 and approximately 215 to 230 pounds. He drove a black 2009 Lexus IS250 with vanity license plates reading Bellic, B-E-L-L-E-K. Stewart has three tattoos, one on his right tricep and one on each shoulder blade. He has been known to have a mustache occasionally. If you have any information, please call Montgomery County, Maryland Police Department at 240-777-0788 or the National Park Service at 307-344-2607. And on all, all of our socials, we'll be sharing pictures and, and all the information to follow up on these cases. So, so please share this podcast. Someone somewhere knows something. 2010 wasn't that long ago. So the next case that we'll be sharing today is one of the most tragic cases in Yellowstone's history. Here is the story of the Trishman family and the filicide of young Joseph. Filicide is the term used when a mother intentionally ends the life of one of her children. The Trishmans first made Yellowstone home in 1899 when Patriarch George began working for the U.S. Army. He was a post carpenter at Fort Yellowstone. His family consisted of his wife, Margaret, and five living children, Anna, Harry, Elizabeth, George T., and Joseph. Margaret was well known for her emotional and mental instability. I'm sure she did her best, but mental health was not an issue that medical professionals or everyday people had much of an understanding of at that time. Her emotional struggles escalated to Margaret attempting to take her life by slashing her own throat with her hunting knife. Oh, that's so sad. 
She later claimed to say that a man had been trying to attack her and that she wasn't assaulted. But authorities and her family quickly unearthed the truth on that one. Margaret really needed help at this time. She was committed for a short stay at a mental hospital in Warm Springs, Montana. Mental hospital facilities around that time were anything but comforting to those in need of psychological or physical care. They were underfunded, understaffed, overcrowded, and a stay would probably seem more like a prison sentence than a treatment center at that time. So sad. After a few months at the mental hospital, Margaret tried to adjust back to her home life with her family. She seemed only to deteriorate further from reality since her hospital stay. Unfortunately, uh, Margaret suffered a full breakdown. So just a heads up, we are going to talk about a murder of a young child. So if you want to skip ahead, it's just about 10 seconds. On June 3rd, 1899, using a large hunting knife, Margaret cut her son Joseph's throat so deeply that he was almost decapitated. Little Joseph was just five years old. After this violent encounter, she chased her other children around the small home with the same knife. Luckily, they were able to escape. As a result of her attack on the children and the death of little Joseph, the authorities judged her mentally insane, and with her family in agreement, they decided to send her to a, they called it a mental home, um, out in Washington, D.C., over 2,000 miles away by train. Margaret did not survive the train ride. She sadly threw herself from the train and into the Yellowstone River. Her body was never recovered. Her surviving family, actually, this is... I wanted to put an upside on this story, but her, her surviving family actually really prospered and had a big impact on the community. Her older son, Harry, became one of the first park rangers after the creation of the National Park Service. That's really cool. Isn't that interesting? He rose in the organization to become the chief buffalo keeper at Yellowstone National Park. Trishman's Knob, an isolated summit along the Continental Divide, is named after Harry. So cool. Chief Buffalo Keeper. Don't you wish that was on your resume? That, that is, is a good title. Really, really cool. I just think it's really cool that the family was able to stay in the area and just continue to grow. Like the two daughters, Anna and Elizabeth, they excelled at business and became a really powerful duo for commerce in the area. They owned many businesses and at one point owned and operated all of the general stores and gas stations in the northern half of Yellowstone. Isn't oh, that great? I'm so glad that they did well. I love when there's at least some positive that well, comes out of it. And especially women, two sisters, you yeah. know, doing it on their own. That's cool. Margaret's family and the following generations are looked at as pillars of the community and a source of strength in their little rugged part of the world. Yeah. We do have one more murder case um, that I promise you'll have nightmares over. It's a, it's a sad one. But we'd like to share two more disappearance cases in Yellowstone. The research was a challenge on these two victims because there is hardly any information out there. I mean, I was looking. Other researchers were posting about the lack of information out there as well. So I'm just telling you, I did my very best. But everyone's having a hard time gathering info for these two men. We will be sure to give you all the information that we have been able to scrape together. We don't want these men to be forgotten. This is the story of Bruce Parker Pike and Daniel Campbell. So Bruce Parker Pike was visiting Yellowstone National Park from Texas. While staying at the Indian Creek Campground, that's about eight miles south of Mammoth Hot Springs, we can assume he was enjoying some quiet time with nature. 
You see, Indian Creek is off of the beaten path, so it is a quieter area and is visited by more experienced outdoors people. I think it's safe to say that Bruce was an avid adventurer to find such a beautiful place to stay, you know, going solo, just enjoying his time. Bruce disappeared on August 2nd, 2006. We don't know if he walked away or if he was taken against his will, but all of his equipment and vehicle was left behind. No evidence was left at the Indian Creek campground with no signs of foul play. It seemed like he just vanished into thin air. At the time of his disappearance, he was just 47 years old. He would be just 63 years old today. Bruce Pike is a Caucasian male with brown hair and brown eyes. He is 5'11 and was around 185 pounds when he was last seen. His great big smile can be seen in one of the photos we have of him. It's posted on social media. Again, go ahead and share this podcast. Get the word around. This disappearance is just from 2006, so someone out there knows something. Please, if you have any information, call Texas Department of Public Safety at 800-346-3243 or the National Park Service at 307-344-2607. And we are going to take one last break to hear a word from our sponsors. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's Balance of Nature, promo code REDHANDED. Okay, thank you to our sponsors. Melanie, what's next? So we're on to our third Yellowstone disappearance. Daniel Campbell was somewhat of a local to the Yellowstone area. He is from Big Timber, Montana, just about a two-hour drive from where he was last seen in Yellowstone. On April 6, 1991, Daniel, who was 47 years old at the time, had asked some friends to drop him and his dog, an Australian sheepdog, off at Hell Roaring Creek Trailhead in Yellowstone. Yeah, so Daniel, who was a very experienced outdoorsman, was planning on hiking through to Jardine, Montana. I couldn't find the exact distance the hike was planned to be that he was going to take that day, but it's about 100 miles if driven on US 89. I'm sure he was, you know, hiking as the crow flies, so much shorter, but still, that's a long hike still. Yeah, definitely not an easy, like, Sunday afternoon stroll. That's really far. The reason behind this outing was Daniel had some illegal elk antlers that he had collected and had hidden in the mountains. He was planning on picking the antlers up and taking them with him out of the national park. Daniel and his dog never arrived to Jardine, Montana. He was reported missing on April 9th, 1991, and the extensive search began with no results. Yeah, Daniel and his dog have never been seen or heard from since. No, no evidence, nothing left behind, nothing. Daniel Lynn Campbell was 47 years old and would be 73 years old today if he's still with us. He is a Caucasian male, five foot seven, and was 130 pounds at the time of his disappearance. He has brown hair and green eyes. He is left-handed and has a healed fracture to his left hand. He has a scar on his chin, a scar on his upper right arm, and a gap between his two front teeth. 
If you have any information, please call Sweet Grass County Sheriff's Department at 406-932-5143. Yeah, the, the, I know we don't have much on that case, but I just think it's interesting that he was very familiar with the area. He was very uh, you know, skilled at the rugged lifestyle out there, and there is just nothing, nothing left. Yeah. Let's get on to our second murder and last nightmare of Yellowstone case we are going to share today. This is the story of the tragic death of James Michael Schlosser. James was just 22 years old on the evening of July 10th, 1970, and he was traveling towards Gardner, Montana, when he generously made the decision to pick up two hitchhikers. So nowadays, hitchhiking or picking up hitchhikers is something that is kind of looked at as extremely high risk and very dangerous. But in the 1970s, everyone traveled by hitchhiking. It happened a lot. Yeah, it was very common. And that's just how people got around back then. I mean, no Uber, nothing like that. You just stuck your thumb out, especially the college age men and women. James picked up two men, Stanley Dean Baker and Harry Allen Straup. The men were traveling from Sheridan, Wyoming. So James was from Great Falls, Montana, and grew up in a very close-knit family. He was quiet and kind, and he was known to wear his very thick glasses. His family owned Schlosser's Grocery in Great Falls, and James grew up stocking and organizing shelves, sweeping floors, and sorting out crates of produce. His family worked hard together and were very close. The two men from Sheridan, Baker and Straub, had left their homes in June, about a month before. They were set to travel the west by hitchhiking and just to kind of go wherever the wind sent them. Um, the day before they met James, they had traveled with a family from Great Falls, the Scott family. So Mrs. Scott had prepared a very nice picnic for the family, and so they shared it with the two hitchhikers, uh, Straub stayed with Mr. and Mrs. Scott and just sat and chatted on the picnic blanket while Baker, the other man, fished down the river with their 13-year-old son. Thankfully, the Scott family survived their pleasant afternoon, not knowing who they shared their picnic lunch with that day. Yeah, the next day, the two hitchhikers met up with James. He had just gotten off of work at the Muscleshell County Welfare Office and decided to go fishing. On his way to one of his favorite fishing spots, he picked up Baker and Straub. James was completely unaware that the men were on a drug binge, and he had just invited a nightmare into his car. The men were really, really high on LSD, a hallucinogen. The three men traveled to the northern entrance of Yellowstone National Park to spend some time in nature and to camp in one of the many campgrounds. When they arrived, they found out all of the campgrounds were full, so they ended up setting up their own campsite just outside of Gardner and on the banks of the Yellowstone River. I think this really like tells us a little bit about James, is that he picks up these two men and he's just open and willing to like start a new friendship and share his time. Yeah, Don't very trusting. Now? Yeah, very trusting. Very trusting. Definitely. In the middle of the night as James was sleeping, Baker, who was high on LSD, crept over to James and shot him in the head with a 22 caliber rifle. And just, I wanted to give you another warning. We are going to be talking about some gruesome details. It'll be pretty quick, but you may want to skip ahead 20 seconds if you feel like you need to. Um, he then dragged uh, the deceased James's body over to the river and began to dismember the body. Using a large hunting knife, he cut the body into six large pieces 
Lastly, he removed the heart and he ate it. Apparently, Straup, the second hitchhiker, did not participate but was present when all of this happened. Yeah, the two men then stole James's car and headed to California. The next day, the Park County Sheriff's Office in Montana received a phone call from a local fisherman. He was very upset because instead of catching a fish, he had snagged a human torso on his fishing line. I understand why he's upset. Yeah, the FBI traveled to Park County and examined the torso. It was found without arms or a head and had a large T-shaped incision across the chest. The torso was missing the heart, which, of course, we know why. By Wednesday, July 15, 1970, Baker and Straub were in the hands of authorities. They were captured in Big Sur, California, driving James's car and were arrested initially after a hit and run. Yeah, the duo had gotten into a car accident with another vehicle driven by a tourist from Detroit, Michigan. The kind tourist offered to give the two men a ride to a payphone to report the accident. Again, no cell phones, so they were just going to hit you right over and report the accident. When they arrived at a payphone, Baker and Strap hopped out of the car and took off running. The men were captured on a dirt road by California Highway Patrol Officer Randy Newton. Baker, after being apprehended, turned to an officer. Baker, after being apprehended, turned to an officer and simply said, I have a problem. I am a cannibal. Both men, Baker and Straub, dug their hands into their pockets and pulled out finger bones. Just 10 days after the murder, Baker and Straub were extradited back to Montana. Immediately admitted to the crime and was sent for a mental evaluation, which I think is a really good idea. This story is, is pretty brutal. I don't know if I've ever heard of anybody saying that they were a cannibal to authorities. That seems like a huge red flag. Well, you don't hear of cannibalism bones. very often and, and holding finger bones in your pockets. This, this story is brutal. On October 20th, District Judge Jack Shanstrom handed down the sentence of life in prison. He served just 16 years. Which does not make sense mm -hmm. to me. I'm sure there's reasoning behind it, but that's crazy. I can't think of what that reasoning may be. <laughs> yeah, Straup pled not guilty, and after his trial, he was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Mel, he served just two years. I am literally in shock right now. Mm -hmm. That is so crazy. I can't believe he served such little time. It makes no sense to me. Two years? Um, James really sounded like a good man, and it sounds like he was just very trusting, like we said, and just willing and open to make new friends and unfortunately just pick the wrong people. Yeah, There's I a mean, lot of... Sorry. No, you're fine. There's a lot of dangers with, with hitchhiking, and this story shows a good example of that. Yeah, James, it just breaks my heart because, I mean, he grew up working hard in his family's grocery store. He was close to his family. I mean, he went to school. He worked at the welfare office, so I assume that he was you know, uh, some type of um, political science, you know, trying to make the world a better place. And he just wanted to go fishing. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. So sad. Yeah. And my, my thoughts on little Joseph's case makes me think about, I'm so grateful that we do understand mental, mental um, health better nowadays that hopefully, you know, people can receive the treatment that they need. It almost seems like her stay in the mental facility in Montana made it made her situation worse 
And um, I'm glad that the other children were able to escape and, and you know, God bless little Joseph. I, I think it's really, really cool though that the family rose above that trauma and stayed in the community and made the community a better place. They built that community up and became a part of its history. Yeah, and I think these stories especially are so important to talk about because we have come a long way with mental health, but I think we just as a society need to keep talking about it and finding ways to continue to improve it and to take away that stigma around taking care of your mental health. Absolutely. Yeah, so then on the disappearances that we talked about, it's just so crazy to me to have somebody up and vanish and just disappear. The three men that we talked about are sons, possibly brothers, fathers, and friends, and they're they're real people who have disappeared and their families don't know where they are, and that's just heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, again, share this podcast because, again, someone somewhere knows something like you said, disappearances are hard to understand. And I will say of all the cases um, that, you know, I I consume in my life, the disappearances always stay with me. My all-time case that stays with me is Bryce LaPisa. Those disappearance cases are hard for me to shake for sure. Yeah, definitely. So take a minute, go check out our socials at Rocky Mountain Red Handed. Um, study the pictures, share them on your socials and comment and let's get some conversation going and Let us know what your thoughts are on any of these cases, all of these cases. Yeah, it's hard to imagine such horror happening in one of the most naturally beautiful places in the country, but it happens. Most importantly, we send all of our love to the families and friends of these victims. Yeah, and we also wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you, all of our listeners. We are so appreciative of all of the sharing that you're doing, the reviewing. We've had such an amazing response, and this has been so awesome for us. It is so, so, so great. We we love you guys. Um, the podcast is growing faster than we expected, so know just keep sharing um thank you so much for the support yeah and we've had some good recommendations come in so we are going to add those to our list we want those to keep coming so send those over to rocky mountain red handed at gmail.com and we'll get those into our list yeah share those cases in your community and also remember our contest i've been on pins and needles waiting to hear about your grand adventure okay so my grand adventure i was about eight years old at the time my dad is a big backpacker and so he decided to take me, my older brother, and my little brother. So I was about eight. My little brother was probably six at the time. He decided to take us on an overnight camping trip, and it was over Easter weekend. Okay, wait. So your dad, Solo, yes, wants to take an eight and a six-year-old on an overnight. Backpack. And my older brother, who was probably 10. So 10, eight, and six. Yes. Okay. Your older brother is probably a little bit of a help, but your dad is a very brave man. Yes, he is. So we were supposed to be hiking over this mountain. My mom dropped us off on one side and then she was supposed to pick us up on the other side the next day. So it was like hiking over a mountain basically. So is your mom just getting pedicures during this time? (laughs) No, she had, no, she had my little sister with her. (laughs) So we, my mom dropped us off. We went on our hike, stayed overnight. We got to a certain point and my dad was looking at the maps and he's like, I know I'm in the right place, but it didn't look like we could cross over where we were. I'm sure having little kids at that point was scary. So, oh my gosh, I bet. so we decided that we were going to turn around and hike back the other way. We were almost to the end, but we couldn't figure out how to get to where we needed to be. So we turned around Um, because it had taken us so long, we had to spend another night. Um, I'm sure my mom showed up at the spot. We weren't there. That's gotta be so scary. Yep. So it was only supposed to be one and we had to stay an extra night. 
So my mom called search and rescue. There were helicopters, I guess, four wheelers out oh. looking for us. Luckily, my dad was very well prepared. We had plenty of food. I do remember he made top ramen and he had to mix a couple of flavors together, which was an interesting dinner, but we had plenty of food. We were totally safe. We so hiked did, all the way down. Did you feel like scared? Like as a child, did you kind of realize what was going on or not fully? I, I was scared, but my dad made me feel really comfortable. Like we knew where we were. We knew how to get back down. I think I was more worried that my mom was scared because she had no idea what was going on. She would just had showed up at the pickup spot. We weren't there. And knowing your dad, I could see him keeping his cool. Yes. Like he's not going to freak out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he had planned ahead. We had enough food. So we hiked all the way back down and uh, got a ride back to the police station. And we actually ended up on the news because of it. So <laughs> I remember sitting at the gas station and they interviewed all of us and we ended up on the news. So it ended well. We need to find that footage. It's got to be somewhere, some like somewhere online. It's got to be archived. It's somewhere. Yeah, we'll have to find it. So mm -hmm. that's my story. It's a great story. It's a great story. So Mel, with that great story, you get to say our tagline at the end. Okay, sounds good. Becky, till next time, keep your hands clean. Thanks.